0: If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to an epistle to the book of Ephesians, to chapter 1. Now, perhaps you weren't here last week. Last week, we began considering the doctrine, the Christian teaching, that is summarized for us in one of our church's confessional standards, a summary of our Christian faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, specifically Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19... Deals with the ascension of Jesus, his being taken up to glory following his resurrection. And last week we focused on one aspect of the ascension. I wonder if you recall what that was, namely on the fact that we have a priestly advocate in the very holy of holies within all of creation. God's throne is the most holy place, and there we have one wearing our own flesh pleading the cause of God's people. All who trust in God through Christ. Now, this morning we turn our attention to another aspect, primarily that of Christ being sovereign, of Him reigning as a king over all things. And Paul is dealing with some of the practicalities related to that in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's give attention to the word beginning at verse 15. This is a prayer that he is praying for the Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, the very text that we Have before us is one that declares the necessity of a miracle that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, not only to grasp the content with our minds, but by our spirits to lay hold in faith upon these things. We ask that that would take place this morning, that you would have such abundance of mercy towards your people. We ask for your glory that you would fit us for our kingdom work as you show us Christ seated on his throne. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't think that I have to tell any of you that there are certain blessings that Christians enjoy equally. If you are a believer, you have certain things in common with all other believers. For instance, justification. If you have ten believers in a room, none of them is more justified than the others. To be justified before the Lord is to have been declared righteous on the basis of christ's righteousness if you're justified you have all of it and so there's equality in certain blessings but then there are other blessings which especially in this life christians do not all experience to the same degree there is variation in receiving certain benefits and paul has that in mind in his prayer for these ephesian believers look at me at verse 17 and 19 he's praying quote that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened let that sink in we are so accustomed to thinking of christians as the enlightened ones And yet there is a sense in which Paul is saying to these Ephesian Christians, you are still in darkness, a relative darkness. It's like having cataracts and things are dim. And so to a different degree, you or another Christian may not fully behold the light of what he's talking about here. And notice that he's praying for it. That shows that it's more than a matter of intellectual apprehension. You can come in here with a big brain this morning and sit down and be able to outthink the preacher in everything. That would not be a terrible surprise. And yet, there may be a Christian who is, by your standards of knowledge, quite ignorant, who has tasted of the powers of the age to come in ways that you have not even begun to. Because this is a work of the Holy Spirit. See what he says in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? I don't think that verse ever expired. The immeasurable greatness. It may be that now scientists have calculated the distance between stars. Immeasurable greatness. The mass of enormous stellar objects immeasurable greatness toward those who believe and it's this which we do not experience to the same degree a spiritual apprehension delight confidence rejoicing that comes from believing one Christ truly is reigning and second he is reigning for me toward us who believe I don't feel that all the time, but I felt it, and I trust that many of you have as well. As many as know Christ have some of this. You're not totally darkened, but don't you want more of that light? Don't you long to be so compelled by a vision that, like Paul seeing Christ, your whole life has changed. Your decisions have changed. Your attitude has changed. If we saw more of Christ in glory by the Spirit, would we not be a better representation of the kingdom on earth? And this is what the Lord calls us to consider this morning. To think about what it means that Christ reigns, not only as a general doctrine, but also practically for us. And so as we consider this, we're going to look at our text under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But basically, first we need to get a general sense of Christ's ascent To the throne. A general sense of Christ's ascent to the throne. And then, secondly, we're going to think about some of the advantages that come to you as you really savor that. Now I'll mention those again, but at this point I want you to think about something else. Is it not true? In one sense, Jesus never began to reign. We saw last week that he never, in one sense, had to depart from earth to be in heaven, he is omnipresent God. And so he is omnipotent God. He is eternal God. And so he did not, in that sense, have to begin reigning. As it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a prophecy concerning Jesus 700 years before he was incarnated. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, future. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because the Son is eternally one in being and essence with the Father, he never began to reign. And so even on the cross, it's not as if the world was slipping into a state where no one was in charge. And yet, the doctrine of Christ's ascension does declare that in a different sense, his inauguration of the new creation began at a definite point in time. I think it's very common for us to think of the new creation as far away. There's a sense in which it's now. Christ has been raised with the same glorious body that he will have into everlasting ages. And he sits on the throne wearing our flesh as king of the new creation as well as of this age. And so we need to grasp together a little bit of the benefit or the basic doctrine of the ascension. Savor this with me. I've said before, you can't transmit an epiphany. Sometimes you put in a seed, and then it hits you a long time later. And I'd like to plant a seed here. Christians believe audacious things. One of them is that we believe a human being with a true body stands in the highest position of authority over all creation. With his true human mind and soul, he makes decisions, and those decisions have an impact upon all the cosmos. Jesus is not just a cosmic coach, somebody that you hope gives you some better ideas about how to live. He is on a throne. And according to the scripture, though this is veiled for a time in order that he might fulfill his purpose in this world, yet he is in authority. Consider examples, for instance, in our text it says that he is, in verse 21, "Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion." That's not just on earth. We don't have time to get into, but the Bible describes how there are powers and principalities that compete for our spiritual allegiance in the world. Christ stands over all, good and evil alike. Second Thess- or First Thessalonians chapter four verse 16 tells us about what will happen at his second coming, it says, For the Lord then himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. When Christ comes, he comes with a cry of command, and that's not just a thought, that's a human voice saying, Now! And then what happens? The scripture describes how then the angels will be sent forth to gather the souls of all for judgment. One human voice speaks, and ten thousands of angel wings begin to beat, and the roar is described in scripture as deafening. One human opens his voice, and a chasm is made to receive all into judgment forever who were not in submission to him. One human voice, clothed in our very nature, will announce the fate of millions and billions for all time. What an honor! to our race. That is not said to make us feel like nothing, but God in power has chosen to make much of human beings, to take one from among us, not among the angels. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? One wearing your nature is brought to that position of authority and power. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, Then on that day the heavens will pass away with a roar, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Many of us, I know, have devices in our homes where we can speak and things happen now. We say, I don't want to give free publicity. We say the name and it's being recorded and anybody who listens to this, it'll cause all their homes to go haywire if I do. (laughs) But in truth... Christ will say on that day, heavens roll up like a scroll. And they will. And all that will be laid bare on that day are the souls of men and angels to receive the judgment and be brought into glory. Now, of course, there's the objection, a natural one, an ancient one. If Christ is truly reigning, then how is it that there are so many in open opposition to him? People who do flagrant evil people who persecute his church. That is not a new objection. The church has wrestled with this from the beginning. Even before Christ was incarnate, of course, he is God. And some of his own prophets and apostles suffered unto death. The Bible tells us that God, for his purposes, has chosen to allow a season, a time, when many do rebel. And he has his purpose for that. For instance, Romans chapter 9 tells us that in allowing a certain amount of agency, a certain amount of freedom to creatures, even to sin, he demonstrates his attributes. Romans 9 says, What if God, wishing to make his power known, has endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath who are being fitted unto wrath? God demonstrates his long-suffering to the world. He does good even to those who hate him. He shows long-suffering, and then he'll show judgment as well. Justice. Justice isn't mean, by the way. We have to banish that thought entirely from us. Justice is doing exactly what is right and fair. And the Lord in that day will demonstrate his justice, just as he at this time shows much mercy. He also tests and he proves the faith of his people. James chapter 1 says that, that through these things, the Lord is manifesting the sincerity of our faith. And so we shouldn't, when we experience all kinds of trials and adversity, think to ourselves, is Christ reigning? We should say, he has a purpose in this. And we should know that he himself sets the limit. I don't ask you to turn to the passage, but I do ask that you give attention to the words of Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 7 through 9, in case you want to study it later, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That does not mean that the Lord is the author of sin and evil. And yet we must acknowledge, unless we're going to say that God is frail, powerless, that whatsoever comes to pass comes by his ordering and decree. He did not create beings and turn over a part of his pie of freedom that he couldn't have his freedom, his sovereignty, without giving up some of it. He has his own pie. We have slices of freedom among us. Your freedom at some point ends where another's begins because we can't all do what we want all the time. But God doesn't have to share his freedom with you. He works all things according to his pleasure. He says, Shower, O heavens from above, let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work, look, it has no handles. Imagine the pot, saying to the Lord, I imagined myself as a handled pot. The Lord says, I'm the potter. And it's not just that the... Again, it's so easy to project our human pettiness. The Lord is a master designer. Not just of individuals, but of stories. Of history. And he says, don't you think I know what I'm doing? I'm on the throne. I have power. And so for a time, we don't see all things subjected to him, but the Bible is very clear, we will. We will see all things subjected to him. As it says in Psalm 110, the psalm that we sang earlier, David prophesying says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He will make them bow down. As it says, Philippians 2.9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I would plead with you about this. It is one thing to have a veneer of religion, and I did for a decade of my life. I did acknowledge there to be God. But it's a different thing to be gripped by the realization He really is your king. He really is an authority. It's not just that you should do right, you must, if you have been called by a God who sits enthroned over angels who obey Him immediately. At least wrestle with your sin, don't be okay with it, take up war. There is a war in each one of us to acknowledge whether or not Christ is indeed the king. But he is whether or not we see it now. What remains for us is to consider some of the advantages. And there are advantages. That's what Paul is looking at. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's thinking of the great blessing that comes in this doctrine. Look at me again at verse 17. His prayer is, that you may know. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Immeasurable greatness that comes from where he's seated. It's been common throughout history that when people come to power, say, a prince, Comes to his position as king, that with this ascension, he will at that time distribute all kinds of gifts to the people who supported him or the people whom he hopes will serve him. Very ancient throughout history. I was just reading this week uh, a history concerning Ramses II, a pharaoh in Egypt. When he came to power, he wanted to curry favor with the gods and probably also with the priests. And he gave so much over to the priesthood in Egypt that he then struggled for years to pay off his other officials. He wanted to show favor, but he had a limited amount of ability to do so. Now Christ refers to us in 1 Peter as a royal priesthood. And he will not be outdone in his generosity by a pagan. He doesn't run out when he provides for his people. He provides the right amount for his people. And there is some in this age and much more in the age to come when no doubt we'll be more responsible with what he gives to us. But this means that we can trust him as our king to provide for his servants. The servant isn't going to labor at his own dime. And he's going to provide everything necessary temporally. Not to make you fabulously wealthy. He may or may not. But certainly that you might have enough to serve In Matthew chapter 6 verse 31 Jesus says do not be anxious and he says that to you this morning he says that as a king do not be anxious what shall we eat what shall we drink what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. If you make your first priority the gathering up of righteousness, of seeing Christ reign in your life, of seeing his influence magnified in all things around you, then you may trust he will make sure that you have everything you need. 1 Corinthians 9, in fact, I invite you to turn there and see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Another famous passage concerning his provision, First Corinthians nine, verse eight perhaps a passage that should be printed out and stuck in our wallets and put on the computer to look at every time we're going to check our bank account balance. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Isn't that the case that often we feel that there's not enough to do good? There's not enough to do some good. Now, the amount of good that we do will be different based on what he has stewarded to you. But we stop looking for the opportunity to do good because we wonder, will we have enough? And he says, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The passage he's quoting comes from a psalm talking about Jesus' ascent to glory. As a king, he's going to provide what is needed. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So here again, in harmony with Matthew chapter 6, seeing Christ seated on the throne should drive you to a sense that he will provide enough for you to focus on stewardship, for you to focus on using what he entrusts to you for his kingdom, for his glory, for a harvest of righteousness. And not to be anxious, will we still have enough? Not only does he provide these things, but he also provides for our spiritual life and our spiritual warfare. Think what a scandal it is at times when we have heard about soldiers feeling the need to provide for their own basic necessities. What people on earth would not consider that a travesty? That at his own expense, a man goes to war and has to furnish himself with food or armaments. That is not the way that we expect it to be. Christ summoned you to war. And he will provide everything necessary for your spiritual battle. Of course, the war that he calls us to is spiritual. and We'll consider that a bit more tonight. But that means that he also provides us with the thing we most need. His Holy Spirit. Now, somebody says, I don't really feel like I, I have very much of the Holy Spirit for my fight. And I'm going to tell you, not with judgment, with as much confession as anything. James says we have not because we ask not. Concerning prayer. I think that we could also say that we do not have much of the Holy Spirit because we don't put on the Holy Spirit. We don't use the means Available to us. But this is not because Christ is weak. And I do believe that at times we look around and we think the church is weak, and maybe it means God is weak. The church is weak because the church does not avail herself of the immeasurable power available. Do you think the apostles felt weak? In their souls, according to their human nature, they did. Paul said, We are, who is sufficient for these things? But when they looked at Christ dwelling in them, then they can say, By Christ I can do all things. If Christ calls you to make war on sin, then you can experience an astounding measure of victory even in this life. Not by your own strength. Seek the Spirit. Christ reigns. And so to know that we have the Spirit to fill us with love and with gifts and with fruit is a great comfort to us. In our same epistle, Ephesians, in chapter 4, you see this. Chapter 4, verse 7 grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men then verse 11 when it talks about what those gifts are he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ whatever we need for this church to be an effective god-glorifying kingdom thrusting church is available to us in Christ but only as our eyes are enlightened as we look to him and believe it and take him up on it and then finally there's the promise of protection our catechism puts it this way question answer 51 He himself defends and preserves us from all enemies. What about when Christians are robbed? What about when they are harassed? Just this last month, I read the unhappy news of a URCNA minister and his family being uh, basically pulled over at gunpoint while serving uh, in an area in Africa, and he was severely beaten. In front of his family. Where was Christ on his throne then? And I'm sure that he was tempted to question that. But the same question can be raised about Stephen, The first of the martyrs. After Christ's resurrection. Turn with me and look at one more passage. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 describes the incident of his martyrdom. You have the question, where is is Jesus on his throne? As Stephan is being killed, bludgeoned with stones? Acts 7, verse 54, Now when they heard these things, the crowd was enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The scripture itself does not sugarcoat what may be in your future. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to prepare you. If anyone follows after Christ, they have to count the cost. You don't put your hand to the plow and then look back. If the Lord calls you to this, the Lord wants you to know that There is no, it's not a guarantee there will not be persecution. There's a guarantee there's no purposeless persecution. When Stephen is in that situation, what he needs most to see is Christ is at the throne. And that's not meant to get him an escape card that he doesn't have to suffer. Jesus himself suffered. But what this does mean is that he has a conviction. There is purpose in this. And meanwhile, at that very same moment as he, upheld by the Holy Spirit, is able to show mercy to pray for their forgiveness, the very people who are killing him. There is Saul, the persecutor. And no doubt the Lord is using that witness of Stephen to prepare Saul to come to faith. To to ask the question, by what power does a person not only look death bravely in the face, but have love for an enemy? We have to see Christ seated, ordaining all things for our good purpose. Not only to see him as a priestly advocate, but as a princely protector and provider. And that's what this doctrine brings us to. And so, I simply want to lead you to a few questions by way of conclusion. First, does your life give reasonable evidence that Christ is your king? I say that realizing even the most devoted falls every day the psalmist says a righteous man falls seven times yet he gets up again but there should be a discernible difference between your life and the life of someone in the world and not simply i don't mean simply outward moral performance i mean that in your very heart you long to submit and you come back to that day after day Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that on the final day, there are going to be many who say to him, Lord, Lord, and they think they have a place in his kingdom. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who worked wickedness. There has to be a fundamental break in the life. And for those who are raised in the church, you may not remember that. That may not be your experience. But there must be for you a sense, Christ is my king. I long to serve him. Not to escape hell, but as one who has already inherited glory. That would be an indication of this power. And if that's not your experience, a good tree bears good fruit. And you simply cannot change what kind of tree you are. You have to call out to God to perform a miracle. And then believe him that he will. That he will change you. And you don't stop crying out until the king has extended the scepter in power. You cry and you cry and you cry. And I don't care if you cry for a week or a month or a year. Some of us, I know, have had that experience. Assurance didn't come in a day. You seek the kingdom. The violent take it by force. And it is a spiritual violence. You say, I will know Christ. He will be my king. And the promise of scripture is that those who do know him, the glory that awaits you, The things, the things that we live for are so petty that I live for. And the satisfaction we think we're getting through a mundane waste of time. It will not compare to the glory of seeing Christ look at you crowned in glory and say, Sit with me forever. Have authority over all things. Judge angels. Enjoy my creation. This should then lead us to heartfelt gratitude and praise. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May that be true for us more and more. Let's ask him to bless it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us such a high priest and king, Jesus Christ the righteous. We thank you that we have the ideal head over the church. We ask that you help us not to acknowledge any person or power on this earth that claims to stand in his place, whether the head of the visible church or any civil power that compels us To obey you rather than him, even as it says in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than people. But give us wisdom and humility, we pray, to know how best to please you, to serve you in this world, where for a time you have placed us under secondary authorities, both in the church and in the magistrate. We pray, Father, that more and more we would see the kingdom of God revealed in our own hearts and manifested in our lives, and in our churches, and everything we ask for his glory. Let us just share a little bit to be in his presence, to reflect the light when he himself is the true light. In Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.